You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A new speculative execution processor flaw is addressed with software mitigations. LokiBot gets more persistent and it adopts steganography for better obfuscation. The cyber spies of APT41 seem to be doing some moonlighting. An accused criminal who bribed telco workers to unlock phones is in custody. Scammers are exploiting the tragedies in El Paso and Dayton. And a call at Black Hat for the security sector to bring in some safety engineers. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, August 8, 2018. Bitdefender has warned of a new speculative execution flaw in Intel processors that isn't addressed by the measures taken to mitigate Spectre and Meltdown. The vulnerability could enable a side-channel attack that abused the SWAPGS system instruction. The vulnerability could expose data in privileged portions of the kernel memory, including passwords, tokens, private conversations, encryptions, and so on. Bitdefender disclosed the vulnerability to Intel last August. The chipmaker decided to address it at the software level, and Microsoft coordinated patches to mitigate the issue. Security firm Trend Micro finds that LokiBot has grown more persistent and also added steganographic obscuration features. Steganography is the art of concealing a message, or in this case malicious code, in an image. LokiBot is still the information stealer it's been since it first came to researchers' attention when it appeared on the black market in 2015 and 2016. Trend Lab says LokiBot continues to be actively traded in these online markets and that it can be expected to remain an active threat for a long time. Our correspondents at Black Hat have been following FireEye's report on a Chinese government threat group, ABT-41. The security firm's research, published to their website this morning, gives some insight into the interpenetration of criminal groups and espionage services. This has been seen before, especially in the relationship between Russian security services and cyber criminal gangs in that country. There, it's more like a protection racket. You get to run your criminal enterprise, provided you hit the right targets and stay away from the ones that are off-limits, and provided you accept the occasional tasking. At other times, it's more like moonlighting, which is what seems to be the case with APT-41. Members of the group execute both espionage and financially motivated crime. At Black Hat last night, FireEye's John Holtquist and Barry Van Garrick summarized and answered questions about their company's report. APT-41 is known for targeting the video game industry, which the researchers believe is due to gamers in the group making some coin on the side from their hobby. FireEye said they've detected a significant shift in the group's activities that took place in late 2015 when the hackers moved away from intellectual property theft and toward strategic intelligence gathering from multiple different industries. Those industries included healthcare, telecoms, high-tech companies, 
and software supply chains. But APT41 has continued to target the video game industry, not normally conceived of as having national strategic importance. The operators seem to be pursuing personal financial gain, although the researchers noted that it was strange that the Chinese government would allow them to use the tools used for serious state-sponsored campaigns for personal reasons. Once a tool is used, you can usually consider it blown, and it seems unlikely you'd want to risk that to scoop up what you need to sell skins or loot boxes. But perhaps the Moonlighters are freelancers, in which case, heaven forgive them, because the Ministry of State Security won't. Or perhaps the tools are already blown, and the Ministry doesn't care, regarding the whole thing as something the operators are welcome to do off the clock. Maybe it even keeps their skills up. How many times a day do you enter a password, and would you feel more or less secure if entering passwords became a thing of the past? James Pluff is a strategic technologist with security firm Mobile Iron, and he shares these thoughts. Like many things in technology, there are certain decisions that are hard to walk back after you've made them. And passwords, I think, are one of those. We didn't have a better solution for a long, long time. It was the only thing that was available to us. But one of the interesting things that's emerged now with the ubiquity of mobile devices and in particular biometric and other sensors that exist on them, we start to have better ways of doing authentication and proving identity at our disposal. So we're kind of at an inflection point in the technology landscape where we finally have some resources to start approaching things differently than we have done in the past. And so I think that that's where we're at today. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, as an iOS user, using Face ID and before that, Touch ID, I find them to be both convenient and secure. Uh, is that the direction you think we need to head in? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what you hit on just there, Dave, is an excellent point. For a long time, security and convenience have had a particular tension, right? If you think about, in particular, the case of passwords, there's been a tendency of folks to reuse passwords because remembering a lot of passwords is difficult, and that helps contribute to some of the risk that passwords create. So if you think about something like Face ID, it does a very accurate 3D model of your face. So you can get very strong authentication, but it's very easy for you as a user, right? You just hold the phone up, and it does its thing, and things just sort of automatically work. And I was a relatively late upgrader to the iPhone, uh, the iPhones that supported Face ID. And I was actually a little bit cagey coming off Touch ID. I was like, how is this possibly going to work as well? <laughs> how am I going to live without a home button? But I had it for a day and I was like, why did I ever use a home button? Yeah, my experience was pretty much the same. You know, when you combine that with some of the other capabilities that are out there for you know, technology providers, the advent of things like online ID proofing services, where not only can you take advantage of the biometric sensors on the devices, but you're able to use things like the cameras to scan government issued photo IDs. Before I got on the flight to get where I am doing check-in, I, I had to do passport verification, but I didn't need to stop by the desk at the airport to do that, just when I opened up the app, it said, please take a picture of your passport. And it confirmed that I was the right passenger and it streamlined that whole thing. When you combine all those things together, you really do start to get to a point where you have some pretty attractive options for security. It strikes me that it seems like we're lagging on the desktop. You know, there are, I guess there are some computers now that are having things like Touch ID. Um, 
but we're not really seeing the the same progress on the desktop. Where do you think that's heading? Is it going to be, will, will our mobile devices connect with our desktop devices? Will the desktop devices integrate this sort of hardware? Where do you think we're headed? That's an interesting question. I think, you know, we'll probably see a little bit of hardware. And as you know, we have seen some of that with some vendors, but I think there's two interesting dynamics at play. One is the fact that folks typically always have their mobile device with them and they already have this hardware. So using a mobile device as kind of the authenticator external to your laptop um, is something that can work pretty well because we also have ways to transmit that data over things like Bluetooth and so on. I saw an interesting stat recently that was talking about the amount of web traffic that was coming from mobile devices compared to PCs and desktops. And it's actually... (laughs) eight times more data is coming from mobile devices than from PCs and a Cisco survey where they kind of project what the internet utilization is. You know, more than just having to figure out how we solve the question of how we authenticate on laptops and desktops, I think you'll actually see more and more things just move to a pure mobile world. I know that I don't spend a lot of time on my laptop these days. I'm either using, you know, an iPad or an iPhone. And I think we'll continue to see that trend, you know, progress. Do you see us heading towards a time when we jettison the use of passwords altogether? I think the limitations of passwords have been well understood for a very long, long time. And I think as we kind of discussed earlier, it's been difficult to move away from that decision. But when you look at some of the standards efforts coming out of folks like the FIDO Alliance, the fact that they've just submitted WebAuthn to the W3C for ratification, you know, we start to see opportunities to take advantage of the biometrics, to use things like cryptographic challenges instead of passwords. Like all things in technology, the transition will probably be slower than we want. But it's definitely headed the right direction, and I think a lot of the right folks are thinking about this. And even today, if you look at um, technologies like Windows Hello supports FIDO authentication. So it's, it's possible to do not just authentication to your local laptop, but also then take advantage of those capabilities for things like single sign-on to other services that integrate with Microsoft Hello's. As much as we would probably like it to be tomorrow, at least it's heading the right direction. That's James Pluff from Mobile Iron. The leader of a conspiracy to unlock AT&T phones has been extradited from Hong Kong to the United States. The U.S. Justice Department announced yesterday that it had indicted a Pakistani national, Muhammad Fad, with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, conspiracy to violate the Travel Act and the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, four counts of wire fraud, two counts of accessing a protected computer in furtherance of fraud, two counts of intentional damage to a protected computer, and four counts of violating the Travel Act. Fod allegedly bribed workers at AT AT&T's facility in Bothell, Washington, to disable AT&T proprietary locking software on customers' phones. This would enable the unlocked phones to be used in any compatible network. Since AT&T subsidized a substantial cost of phones for customers in service contracts with the company, Unlocked phones are valuable commodities. Fod is also alleged to have bribed AT&T employees to enable him to install malware in customers' phones. Three of his alleged co-conspirators have already pleaded guilty. Hong Kong authorities shipped Mr. Fod stateside on August 2nd. Scammers are already exploiting the shootings in El Paso and Dayton. 
In the wake of any significant event, happy or tragic, scammers crawl out from under the rocks to exploit the well-intentioned, the curious, and the gullible. This past week's events have been tragic, and criminals are losing no time in trying to turn a profit from the news of the killings in Texas and Ohio. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, warned yesterday that criminal campaigns designed to do just that are already in progress. Be particularly wary of emails whose subject lines allude to either or both tragedies, but also be aware, as CISA cautions, that scammers won't confine themselves to email. Quote, Be wary of fraudulent social media pleas, calls, texts, donation websites, and door-to-door solicitations related to these events. Sadly, that's good advice. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Uh, Ben, it's always great to have you back. Um, The article came by from The Verge, and this is about Virginia uh, instituting or or I guess updating their revenge porn laws to cover deep fakes. What do we got going on here? Yeah, so back in 2014, Virginia first enacted a statute to ban the use of revenge porn. So they defined it as nude videos with the intent to coerce, harass, or intimidate another person. What they just passed earlier this year in their legislative session, uh, session, and it just went uh, into effect very recently, 
is that a image or video falsely created, um, which we think revert refers to deep fakes, but also potentially something just like a plain photoshopped image or a faked image would also violate that law. This is a uh, part of a criminal statute. So you under this uh, statute, you could subject yourself to imprisonment or a relatively large fine. Um, this is the first legislation, I believe, nationwide that applies revenge porn statutes to deepfakes. And I think the Virginia legislature is ahead of the curve in realizing that the use of these faked images can be just as exploitative as uh, the use of regular revenge porn. And, you know, this is activity that the the person who's being shown on one of these videos or images has not even participated in voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, so I think it's, it's a good addition to what was already a strong statute on uh, revenge porn and signals that there is now... Um, interest among both federal and state legislatures in trying to regulate this phenomena of of deepfakes. Do you suspect this is the this sort of thing will make its way across the country, or could we see action on a federal level? So there have been whispers uh, about action at the federal level. There's some bipartisan uh, support. Uh, this article mentions a bill introduced by a Republican senator and Democratic House member that would institute some regulations on deepfakes. Um, Texas passed its own law uh, on this, but the law in that case deals with uh, our political system and not with non-consensual pornography, which is the basis of the Virginia statute. So I think Virginia really could be setting a trend here, um, especially as this issue becomes more prevalent, these videos become more prevalent, people's knowledge of the fact that some of what they view on the internet may be a, a deep fake. It's just starting to get ingrained in our minds that we shouldn't believe everything we see coming out of a, a person's mouth on a video. I think as that starts to get ingrained in our minds, our lawmakers are going to take notice and are going to take action. And um, I think Virginia has done the country a service in, in providing a model statute to, to accomplish that goal. There's certainly been a lot of attention to this issue um, and I suppose, I mean, part, it's it's natural for it to sort of bleed over into the political arena as well. Yeah. So there's been a viral video uh, that's gone around over the past year or so that has former President Obama giving a speech that he never actually gave. Um, but the deepfake technology is, is so advanced at this point that it really looks like he's giving that speech. Mm -hmm. um, and this can be uh, really dangerous. I mean, we've seen the spread of so-called fake news over the past several of years, people are seeing things come across their social media feeds that have been created out of whole cloth or have been doctored in some way. And this can distort people's view of their own political leaders and our own political system and can really be detrimental to uh, democracy. If people don't have proper information on what's real and what's fake and what their political leaders have actually said and what they were purported to have said, um, then that can really affect the functioning of, of our democracy. So even beyond the issues discussed in this Virginia statute, I think there's going to be a big debate as to how we can sanction or in some way regulate these uh, deep fake videos. Ben Yellen, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.